Welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills podcast series on enforcement of arbitral awards aimed at financial institutions and others operating in EMEA. My name is Nicholas Peacock. I'm a partner in the International Arbitration Group in the London office. I'm joined today by Alexander Kretinin, a senior associate in the Moscow Disputes Practice with extensive experience in Russian litigation and arbitration. In this series of podcasts, we're going to talk about our experiences and trends in enforcing arbitration awards in some of the countries or regions within Europe, the Middle East and Africa that might be termed emerging markets, or at least where the practice of international arbitration is developing. We're recording this podcast on the 28th of June uh, 2019, so the usual caveats apply that the position we describe may have changed later on as this is a fast-moving area. Now, we've chosen this topic because as banks and financial institutions increasingly lend to borrowers in emerging market jurisdictions within EMEA, they're having to think carefully and often become more creative in terms of structuring their dispute resolution clauses in order to ensure enforcement at a later stage. Arbitration is increasingly becoming the dispute resolution mechanism of choice, primarily because reciprocal recognition treaties for domestic court judgments are limited. Now, enforcement is often seen as part of the final stages of the dispute resolution process, but it's necessary to think about enforcement right at the time you're drafting a dispute resolution clause in a contract, and then again when a dispute is on the horizon. There is nothing more frustrating or futile than going through a lengthy and costly litigation or arbitration, only to discover afterwards that the piece of paper you're holding is not worth anything, as you can't enforce your judgment or reward. Now, the key differentiator between litigation and arbitration in this context is the 1958 New York Convention. This creates significant enforcement advantages for arbitration. Arbitration awards are enforceable in jurisdictions through local courts where you may not be able to enforce court judgments. Now, there's more to say on the New York Convention, but we're going to leave that as a topic for another time. So instead, let's focus in on Russia. Now, Alex, tell us, what is Russia's record with enforcing foreign arbitration awards? Thank you, Nick. Uh, Russia is a signatory to the New York Convention, allowing foreign awards to be recognized and enforced in Russia. However, Russia has historically been viewed as having some challenges when it comes to enforcing foreign arbitral awards. In November 2018, the Russian Arbitration Association published a study of enforcement of foreign awards between 2008 and 2017, which said that in various years, 80 to 97 percent of all recognition and enforcement applications were successful. At the same time, a majority of these awards come from relatively small-scale trading arbitrations of trading disputes conducted under rules of the Ukrainian or Belarus Chamber of Commerce. Some commentators have pointed out that when looking specifically at enforcement of LCIA and ICC awards, the rate of success is much lower. It is about 47% for LCIA and about 61% for the ICC awards. Although we should be careful to draw conclusions from one study, it does confirm the view that challenges remain in seeking enforcement of foreign awards in Russia. Hmm. And, And what would you say is the reason for the low success rate? One of the reasons is that the Russian courts have been relatively inconsistent at times, making broad use of the public policy exception in the New York Convention. For example, 
in a case called United World versus Krasny Yakor, a court refused to allow the enforcement of an award against a Russian state-owned entity because it would have an adverse impact on the proper functioning of the state power plant and therefore be contrary to public policy. This could be seen as a slightly protectionist view of the public policy rule. At the same time, the Supreme Arbitrage Court, the former highest commercial court in Russia, has set out some guidance on what constitutes public policy. It clarified that public policy should be understood to mean the fundamental legal principles of particular public importance, such as those that underpin the economic, political and legal systems of the state, including the principles of freedom of contract, equality of the parties and their implied good faith, and judicial protection of infringed rights. The public policy exceptions are extraordinary in nature and should only be applied by the courts in exceptional circumstances, so there seems to be a genuine attempt to reduce the scope of interfering with awards on public policy grounds, but the unpredictability remains. Okay, thank you, Alex. That's a good uh, starting point and general overview. Now let's look at another potentially problematic area in Russia, that of unilateral or one-way option clauses. Now these are clauses that are commonly found in finance transactions, uh, where typically the finance parties would have the right to bring proceedings against, for example, a borrower in any court having jurisdiction over that borrower or in arbitration proceedings. Now, if you're enforcing an award in, in Russia, and if that's an option or a possibility, it's important that your dispute does not include such an option. Now, such clauses are problematic not just in Russia, but also in some other jurisdictions, including France, China, Poland and Turkey. Uh, they should be used with caution or avoided in such jurisdictions, and certainly uh, careful thought should be given to them. In Russia, we have the 2012 decision of the Supreme Arbitrage Court in the Sony Ericsson case, in which the court found that a clause providing an option to one of the parties to initiate litigation or arbitration, while restricting the other party to arbitration, was against a basic principle under Russian law that each party must have equal access to justice. Um, so, Alex, that's my understanding of the Sony Ericsson uh, decision and its implications. Does that remain the position today? Yes, the position has been confirmed in the recent guidance given by the Russian Supreme Court. However, the court clarified that if the right to choose the forum is granted to the claimant in any dispute, i.e. either party, depending on who brings the claim in due course, then the clause would generally be valid. This is because there would be no inequality of arms, as both parties have the option to arbitrate or litigate. So in a finance context, you should not include a clause that allows the finance parties alone to exercise the option to arbitrate or litigate. In such a case, the Supreme Court said, the unilateral part of the clause is invalid to the extent it does not allow the other party to use the same option. Therefore, a unilateral option clause is basically converted into a bilateral one, allowing both the finance parties and the obligors and borrowers the right to exercise the option to arbitrate or litigate. It is unlikely, though, that banks would be willing to include such a clause as it creates considerable uncertainty over where proceedings may be brought. Okay, great. Thank you. That's an important topic, clearly. Um, we're now going to focus in on two relatively recent developments in Russia. First, uh, I want to look at the controversy around the enforceability of standard arbitration clauses. And second, um, let's look at the recent amendments that affect the arbitrability of so-called corporate disputes. 
Um, now, as regards standard arbitration clauses, the controversy arose out of a decision of the Moscow Arbitrage Court in the dredging and maritime management case, uh, where the court refused to enforce a foreign award. And one of the grounds for refusing to enforce was that the arbitration clause did not specify an arbitral institution that would administer the dispute. And so the tribunal uh, was said not to have jurisdiction. The parties to the dispute had included a model ICC arbitration clause uh, in the contract with the seat of arbitration in Geneva. But the Russian court found that the clause did not specifically say that the dispute was to be administered by the ICC International Court of Arbitration and hence there was no valid arbitration agreement. And on this basis, uh, the Supreme Court refused permission uh, to appeal. Um, quite a surprising judgment, I think, uh, for some of us, and, uh, and most people would have expected perhaps an arbitration clause like this to have been enforceable. Naturally, it raised some concern. Um, the ICC actually wrote, uh, I understand, to the Supreme Court seeking clarification and even then put out guidance saying that the parties should specifically name the ICC as the institution administering uh, the arbitration under an ICC arbitration clause. Um, however, Alex, I understand the situation has now improved, is that right? That's right. After the ICC's request for clarification, the Supreme Court published a review on court practice on arbitration. This stated that arbitration clauses should be enforceable if they follow the model clause of a specific institution. It also emphasized that where there is doubt, arbitration agreements should be interpreted in a way that makes them valid and enforceable. In response to this, the ICC has now removed the special guidance relating to Russia, inviting parties to use the standard ICC clause for Russia-related arbitration. Great. So do you think that parties, in light of that, should be rewriting their arbitration clauses, or does the Supreme Court guidance change things? I don't think parties should be rewriting their arbitration clauses. I don't think it's an issue now. Great. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, I'm sure uh, uh, a relief to many. So now let's look at amendments to the Russian arbitration uh, law. Um, I want to look specifically at the changes. Um, the amendments came into force in September 2016 and in March 2019 uh, to deal with two issues. First, they clarify the position on whether so-called corporate disputes are arbitrable. And second, they deal with the growing number of so-called pocket arbitration centres where there are concerns about conflicts of interest. So let's start with the first issue, corporate disputes. Um, Alex, what are they? A corporate dispute is defined uh, as that relating to the creation and management of and participation in a Russian company. Some Russian court decisions in recent years cast doubt over whether such disputes were arbitrable. The amendments provide that in general corporate disputes are presumed to be arbitrable, but uh, they set out a list of disputes that cannot be submitted to arbitration, which are those relating to the convening of general shareholder meetings, those relating to tender offers, those connected with the expulsion of a legal entity's participant, and certification of transactions involving participatory interests in limited liability companies by Russian notaries. Disputes relating to strategic companies i.e. companies operating in a strategic business sectors, are generally non-arbitrable, save for disputes relating to the ownership of shares or participatory interests, the acquisition of, uh, of which did not require approval under the strategic investments law. These kinds of disputes can only be determined by the state courts at the place of the Russian company's place of registration. Okay, thank you. Now, I understand the framework is that all other kinds of corporate disputes can be determined by arbitration, uh, but there is a further caveat. 
around uh, certain other types of corporate disputes. Here, while the disputes are in principle arbitrable, there are restrictions around the institutions recognised to administer such arbitrations and the rules under which they can do so. So let's look at that in, in, in more detail. First, what are these additional categories of corporate disputes? Well, the amendments make two categories of corporate disputes. The first is those disputes relating to the incorporation, reorganization and liquidation of legal entities and derivative actions. The second category includes, for example, disputes regarding ownership over shares, interest in legal entities, the creation of encumbrances over such shares or interests or the exercise of rights arising therefrom, for example, under SPAs, the activities of share registrars and disputes relating to management of legal entities, for example, under a shareholders agreement. The first category of cases must be administered by a permanent arbitration institution seated in Russia under special rules, and there must be an arbitration agreement between the company and all the parties involved. For arbitration falling in the second category, they must be administered by a permanent arbitration institution. However, it is not necessary for the permanent arbitration institution to enact special corporate rules. These disputes can also be adjudicated offshore by a foreign institution accredited by the Russian government. Okay, so in either case you must have a permanent arbitration institution, uh, but other conditions may apply if you fall within the first uh, category of cases. Uh, so that begs the question, what is a permanent arbitration institution? This essentially means an institution that has been recognized as such by the Russian government. As I mentioned earlier, there has been a rise of arbitral centers that are set up by companies to administer disputes to which they are a party, essentially centers that are in the pocket of these companies. While the intention behind the reform is good, it has had the effect of narrowing the pool of international arbitral institutions for these disputes dramatically. Therefore, your choice of arbitration institutions may be restricted uh, if the amendments apply to you. Quite, yes. Our understanding so far is that a limited number of institutions have applied uh, for permits to operate as permanent arbitration institutions. Uh, these include the v Vienna International Arbitration Centre, the Kuala Lumpur International Arbitration Centre. Um, the ICC, LCIA and SCC are not on that list, and nor, as we understand it, is SIAC. Uh, the Hong Kong International Arbitration Centre, HKIAC, is the only uh, leading international arbitration institution that has so far been accredited as a permanent arbitration institution uh, under these rules. Uh, we understand the HKIAC has not deposited special rules to hear corporate disputes yet, therefore it can administer only certain Russian corporate disputes. Um, another difficulty with this separate regime based on the types of dispute is that dispute resolution clauses are usually drafted for all disputes arising out of a contract rather than for corporate disputes or non-corporate disputes, of course. Agreed. Uh, that does make drafting dispute resolution clauses more complicated. Another issue is where parties include a consolidation provision to allow a tribunal to decide disputes under different but related contracts. If one of the disputes is required to be heard by a Russian arbitration institution or court, you may not be able to effectively consolidate the dispute and it may lead to conflicting decisions. It is important, therefore, to tailor-make your dispute resolution clauses to the circumstances of a particular transaction and consider whether corporate and non-corporate disputes are likely to arise out of the same factual matrix and balance this with the party's priorities. 
Thanks, Alex. Definitely something to watch out for early on at the drafting stage. Well, Russia has emerged um, in recent times as one of the more complicated jurisdictions to draft arbitration agreements for, uh, with use of some quite sophisticated waterfall clauses that we've been seeing, which set up uh, essentially a series of preferences for where disputes are to be heard based on the type of dispute in question once it arises and whether or not the institution selected has the required status at the time under Russian law. All that said, these are issues arising under Russian law, of course, so you also need to take a view as to whether you need to have access to the Russian courts during your arbitration or to enforce the outcome. If you don't, then it may be that a more traditional arbitration clause, as recognised by many courts where enforcement might take place uh, outside Russia, will continue to serve your purpose. And all this is without looking at the impact of sanctions on cross-border contracts, uh, which are inevitably now part of the necessary landscape of consideration um, in this part of the world. These are a topic for another time. But for now, thank you for joining us on this episode. If you have any questions or comments on the matters we've discussed, do please get in touch.